Through the book of Matthew, we find ourselves in the 17th chapter. And last week we covered verses 1 to 13, and uh, I want to reread those in addition to the passage that we're going to cover today, 14 to 23. So we're going to be starting in verse 1, if you'd bear with me. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to a crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into fire and open often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then disciples came to, him, came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Well, I read all of verses 1 to 23 because I hope that you have seen the contrast in these two events. At the top of the mountain, we have a glorified Christ. Beautiful. And at the bottom, we have a desperate crowd. At the top, the disciples are drawn into worship, worshiping Christ. And at the bottom, he has disciples reverting to unbelief. We saw a similar contrast in the Old Testament reading in Exodus. Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai having uh, an experience with the glory of God. And what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? They're worshiping a golden calf. 
Similar contrast in my own life. I'm upstairs cleaning the playroom, putting all the toys back in their proper basket, shelf, where they need to go. And what happens? I walk downstairs, and the living room is in shambles. And I declare, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long do I need to bear with you? What do these contrasts teach us? Well, it teaches us how prone to wander we really are. It teaches us how quickly we revert to self-dependence and sin. It shows us how weak and how powerless we are without Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15:5, "Apart from me, you can do nothing." Do you believe that? Or do you still think you have something? Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the opposite side of the coin is what he tells the disciples here by saying, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So you have to recognize your need, your helplessness, your inability, before you can really receive by faith God's unlimited power. God's unlimited power to remove any spiritual obstacle in your life. And I ask you, what are your spiritual obstacles today? What are those immovable mountains right now that just seem impossible in your life? Is it a besetting sin? A sin that you keep going back to over and over again, you think it's impossible. Can't overcome this. Is it a person in your life that you think is unforgivable? Is it a relationship that you think is unrepairable? Is it an inadequate knowledge of the Scripture to fulfill your role in ministry? There's just too much to learn. I can't get there. Is it a prodigal family member? Somebody you think is far beyond salvation or help? Is it the doom and gloom surrounding a recent diagnosis in your life? What are the spiritual obstacles that you're up against that you think are impossible? Do you believe that by faith God can overcome these spiritual obstacles in your life? Have you even started by praying about them? Or are you trying to handle it on your own? We need to be reminded right here from this lesson that we need Christ desperately, that it's by faith that we have access to his power in our life, and that if Christ is with us, there's nothing that can stand against us. All right, so if you're moving through the text with me, we're going to learn from Christ today, Faith 101. That is a faith that can move mountains. And so point number one, it's kind of Christian cliche, but here it is. Everybody needs help. I know that kind of sounds cute, but it's just no way around it. You you read this account and everybody needs help, except for Jesus, that is. Everybody needs help. First of all, Jesus came to a crowd, verse 14 says. 
This account is given in other Gospels, and, and the Gospel of Mark actually fills in some of the details of the story. You know what the crowd is doing when Jesus comes to them? They're arguing. They're arguing with the scribes over this poor, demon-possessed boy. Jesus actually initiates the conversation by asking them, what are you arguing about? He finds the crowd in chaos. Now, we know arguing helps nobody. Strife, argumentation over a clear issue, a problem, doesn't fix it. In fact, Scripture says, James 3, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there there will be disorder in every vile practice. We can assume that this crowd was arguing maybe about what would fix the boy, not to help him, but to get the win and claim victory. Scribes wanted the win. They wanted to be, you know, the articulate defenders of Scripture. The disciples wanted the win, probably for their own cause. And there's an argument that takes place. But you know what this tells me? This crowd is helpless, watching someone else who's helpless. And the helpless can't help the helpless. There's no spiritual power. They have no strength. They have no wisdom that would fix the issue here. This crowd needs help. And you know, sometimes we find ourselves there when we're looking at somebody in a helpless situation and we can't fix it. And we're in our flesh. You ever find yourself start to argue with somebody about it? Start to stir up strife in your own life with the other relationships. You're all looking at the problem. No, I think this needs to be fixed this way. No, I think it needs to be fixed this way. And all of a sudden, you find yourself arguing with somebody else, and, and the problem is unaddressed. Happens a lot in marriage, in parenting, and in other situations in life. Have you been here helpless to help? The helpless trying to help the helpless. Well, the crowd needs help here. And second, the obvious second party who needs help is the father. The father needs help. Look at verse 14. It says, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Oh, this is a desperate place for a father. You know, dads can fix a lot of things. You know, some of our kids, they look at us like we're Superman can fix it all from opening a jar of jam to assembling the playhouse, right? Dad's got a solution. Let me go ask Dad. Dad can fix it, well, until he can't. I'll tell you, the most, hopeless, or sorry, the most helpless that I've ever felt is when, as a father, I can't fix it. I don't know if you've you know, had your children go through injury, sickness, that's the most helpless I feel in life, is when I can't take the fever away, when I can't repair the fracture, when I can't take the pain. And I'll tell you, if you've ever been there as a father, you're looking at your child on a hospital bed and just feeling so helpless, I can't fix it. And they're looking at you like, Dad, do something. Oh, have you been there? Desperate. You can't help. I can't fix it. I sympathize with his father. He's come to a desperate place, and he, but he came to the right place. He falls at the feet of Jesus and he admits, I need help. I need help for my son. 
I can't relieve my son's suffering. The third party that needs help is, is the boy. Oh, this boy needs help. Look at the boy. Look at the description the father gives. He has seizures and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. This is a desperate and dangerous condition. Right? Seizures that cause him to fall into dangerous scenarios, fire or water. He could drown. He could be burned. And we're told later that this terrible physical condition is a result of spiritual oppression. He is demon-possessed and oppressed. I just want you to know that Satan will stoop that low. The enemy will stoop that low. Nobody hates our children more than Satan. Nobody is more helpless to his attacks than our children. Jesus said of children, these are these uh, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Christ welcomes children and says that if you welcome a child in his name, then you welcome him. Children need our help. They need our protection. And they need the help and protection against Satan's schemes. And we know in the world order out there today, the world is working really hard to attack our children. That is a device of the devil, Satan. So this child needs help. This child needs out, out from this demonic possession and oppression. And finally, the disciples need help. Of all the people, I mean, we would think that the apostles, the disciples, the men who have been given authority by Jesus himself over unclean spirits. Back in Matthew 10, do you remember? Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and power to heal every disease. If anybody had the solution or could fix this problem, it was God's ministers, God's men. But could they do it? The father throws them under the bus. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, And I brought them, or I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Epic fail. Massive failure. On the part of God's men, God's ambassadors, God's ministers. And suffice it to say, listen, even ministers need help. Even God's men need help. We all do. Everybody needs help. doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Whether you are super mature, or you're just starting out, or you're not there yet. Everybody needs help. We all do. No one's beyond it. No one's strong enough on their own. No one's smart enough on their own. No one graduates from needing help from Jesus. From children to parents to ministers of God, we all need help. Have you come to the place of recognizing this in your own life? Do you need help right now? Do you sympathize with the crowd? Maybe you're a spectator to trouble and you feel like you're unable to do anything productive to help someone who's in need. Maybe you sympathize with the Father. Maybe someone you love is suffering or sinning and you feel absolutely helpless. There's nothing you can do. Maybe you identify with the boy. You're trapped. You're either enslaved to a besetting sin. You feel trapped and captive to the enemy and the spiritual darkness. 
Maybe you identify with the disciples. You're discouraged in ministry because whatever you do, it seems that nothing is changing anybody. These are all impossible spiritual obstacles that we simply cannot overcome on our own. And Jesus has an indictment for all of us. Look at what he says in verse 17. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. Does Jesus point the finger at any specific party here? No, it's a general exclamation to the whole group. O faithless and twisted generation. That indictment, that includes everybody. That includes the father. That includes the crowd. That includes the child. That includes his disciples. Everyone is rebuked. Everyone is rebuked for being faithless and twisted. This word faithless means unbelieving. Twisted, in some translations it's translated as perverted or crooked. It means to be turned upside down. And here is the root of all human problems. Here is the root of our problem. It's not everything out there. It's in here. The root, the default setting for the human being is unbelieving and upside down. Twisted. Crooked. Our thinking has been twisted. Our desires have been twisted. Our words, our actions. Why? Because we all are under the curse of sin. Every single one of us. We all have sin inside us. And sin that makes us, that blinds our eyes from believing. And sin that perverts God's good design. And we live, think, breathe, talk a different way. This is the root problem. This is the root problem in the crowd, the Father, the Son, and even the disciples. Instead of looking to Jesus, they are looking to self. Instead of living for Jesus, we we live for self. Instead of loving Jesus, we love self. This is the faithless and twisted generation. And Jesus just exclaims, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This is an expression of grief. Jesus is grieving like a a loving father that's watching his child stumble and fall over and over again. By the way, God is not grieved by our need for him. We were made as dependent creatures that need our creator, that depend on our creator. What he's grieved by is when we don't recognize our need for him. And in self-dependence, with a sense of self-confidence, we think we could do it our own way. That's what grieves God. God is not grieved for us to come to Him, to depend on Him, to hold Him like a child holding their father's hand, but He is grieved when He watches us let go and go our own way. And that is what we so easily revert to. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we revert to this unbelieving and corrupted thoughts, words, and deeds. How many people... In a sense, Jesus is saying, how many people do I have to heal for you disciples to get it? How many promises do I have to fulfill? How many demons do I have to cast out? How many words do I have to speak? How many lessons do you need? How much time do I have to spend with you for you to get it? You need me. How long for you? How many times do you need to read it in God's word? Or to hear it preached in a sermon? To be reminded every day that you desperately need him. 
Everyone needs help. The minute you think you don't, you're in trouble. It sets you up for ruin, sin, and despair. It all starts with recognizing that everybody needs help. And so point number two, here's the source of power. Jesus has all the power. Jesus has all the power. They eventually find themselves in the right place, which is coming to the feet of Jesus. Look at Jesus' instructions at the end of verse 17. This is important. He says what? Bring him here to me. Bring the demon-possessed child here. Where does Jesus want you to go with your problems? Where does he want you to go? And where do you typically take them? You take your problems to social media? You take your problems to a friend, a family member, someone you trust? Do you take your problems to your spouse? Do you hash it out on your kids? Do you take it to the mat by yourself, try to wrestle it out, figure it out on your own? Where do you take your problems? Now, where does Jesus want you to bring your problems? Bring them here to me, he says. Fly to Jesus with your guilt. Fly to Jesus with your anxiety, your weakness, your besetting sin, your idol, and every other spiritual obstacle in your life. Bring it all and lay it all at the feet of Jesus. Jesus said, come to me. Not those who are doing well for themselves. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. Jesus alone has all the power to overcome these spiritual obstacles. He overcomes one big one right here. Look at 18. Jesus rebuked the demon. That is, he said a word and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Man, he made that look easy. Jesus rebuked the demon and it's gone. From that very hour, some other translations say, The demon was gone. So get this. In an instant, Jesus overcomes the impossible. He does what no man could do. The biggest spiritual obstacle in your life is effortless for Jesus. Effortless. You might know the verse, Romans 8, talking about Jesus keeping us, God keeping us in salvation. It says this, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, as if he left anything out. Nothing else in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can take you out from his protection. No spiritual obstacle in your life is too big, too mighty for Jesus Christ our God. After telling his disciples it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, his disciples asked, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response is this, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are what? Possible. Nothing is impossible for God. No idol is big enough. No sin is bad enough. No demon is strong enough. No man is stubborn enough. That's good news for us stubborn men. Jesus Christ proved his power to overcome the impossible by overcoming both sin and death at the cross and the empty tomb. 
right? Jesus did the impossible. He lived the perfect life you couldn't live. And he died as your substitute, taking the wrath of God upon himself at Calvary. He was buried in the ground. He rose from the dead. No man has ever risen from the dead by their own power except Jesus Christ. And in that, he overcomes both sin and death. Jesus has all the power. So where should you take your problems? To the buddy at the bar? To the coworker? To the mom down the street? Take your problems to him. Have you ever thought about when you're experiencing stress or a significant problem comes into your life, what's your first knee-jerk reaction? It's like the trial came with like the doctor and hit your knee with a hammer. And what's the knee-jerk reaction? Could to figure this out by myself? I got to go tell another person? Or is your knee-jerk reaction to go to your creator? Help me. I need help. That's where Jesus wants you to go. Jesus has all the power. And then he gives his disciples an important lesson in faith. They might ask, but Jesus, you weren't here. That was the problem. You were up on the mountain doing that transfiguration stuff. And you left us here to deal with all these issues. What happens then? How do we have access to your power when you're not physically present with us? Here's the answer. Point number three, faith is our access to his power. Faith is our access to his power. Look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, probably embarrassed, and said, why could we not cast it out? They wanted to know why. All the other demons, Pavora, we, we cast those demons out. We had success in healing people. Why couldn't we do this one? And Jesus answers, his first answer is this. Look at verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. Little faith. Jesus has talked about little faith before. Jesus told Peter, O oh, you of little faith, when he was distracted by the wind and the storm and he began to sink. Jesus asked, why do you doubt? Literally, why are you second guessing me? In contrast, the Canaanite woman, just you know, a little bit later in Matthew 15, she was commended for her great faith. She had great faith. Why? Why was it great? Well, she professed her faith by declaring Jesus to be the Son of David, the Messiah, the only Savior. And not only that, she persisted in her faith. By ke- ke- she kept going to him, even though Jesus seemingly ignored her. He, she, and then eventually Jesus granted her request and commented, O oh woman, great is your faith. So little faith is a divided faith. It is an insecure faith, not in yourself, but an insecurity in Jesus. A great faith is a persistent faith in who? In Jesus. With that in mind, look back at Jesus' lesson. Why couldn't you cast out the demon? Because of your little faith. Now listen to his lesson. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Is a mustard seed small or is it big? 
So does Jesus contradict himself by saying, oh, you of little faith, and then describes the faith that can move mountains as the size of a mustard seed? Well, it's obviously not the size of faith that is the issue here. It's not the quantity of faith. It's not that you, friend, need to conjure up more faith, more belief, grab it from somewhere. Jesus is talking about the quality of your faith. The quality of your faith. The mustard seed, although it's small, it doesn't stay small, does it? It's actually a very powerful and persistent seed. Mustard seed, starting small, grows, and eventually this massive tree-like bush that's strong, able to host birds. Remember, Jesus used this illustration before. And he says that kind of faith, that quality of faith, the one that's powerful and persistent and focused on its object, that's the kind of faith that can move mountains. Now, I don't want any of you kids to go out there and squint your eyes real hard, grit your teeth, and think you can move the San Gabriel Mountains, okay? Because of this verse. That's not what Jesus is referring to. Moving mountains is an analogy. It's an analogy for what is seemingly impossible. A mountain is a, is a metaphor for an unconquerable obstacle. And what kind of obstacle is Jesus confronting here in the passage, in the context? He's not talking about you making more money, or you getting over a bad boss, or you, you know, get breaking through to your next level to be all that you can be. No, no, no. Jesus was overcoming demons, spiritual obstacles, okay? That's the immediate context. That's the, the problem. The mountain here was demon possession. Now, in another, uh, in another uh, story in Luke's gospel, he gives a similar analogy. He says, if you have, you have this kind of faith, then you can move this mulberry tree. Now, what was the obstacle in that context? The obstacle in that context, you know what the mountain was? The inability to forgive somebody. Is that a mountain in your life right now? That's a pretty big mountain. The bitterness and anger that you can build up towards somebody, pretty soon that turns into Mount Everest, and that never moves. You can let it overtake you. It can become a serious spiritual obstacle in your life, your inability to forgive. Those are the kind of obstacles or mountains that Jesus is talking about in this illustration, that if you have faith that is persistent, powerful, dependent, then God can move that mountain in your life. Not talking about a physical circumstance. He's not promising to get rid of your financial debt or even to get rid of your terminal disease. The mountain could be your attitude related to these problems. Two people come to me and they tell me, Pastor, I have cancer. And both of their attitudes toward it are completely different. Both of their reactions to it are completely different. One is in despair, confusion, Life has been turned upside down. The other, persistently depending on Christ. We think, well, the problem's cancer. Is it? Is that the mountain in this person's life? That mountain could be your attitude related to the problem or difficult circumstance in your life. The mountain could be the spiritual strength that you will need to endure through that trial. This isn't God promising to take all your trials away. Trials are good things, gifts from God, given to you to create endurance and so that you'd grow in conformity to Christ's likeness. 
The mountain could be your attitude toward the trial. A sinful attitude toward the trial that you need to give up, surrender. That God, only by His grace, can overcome. So faith, the kind of faith Jesus is talking about, is a wholly dependent faith. It's aligned with the will of God. It's not contrary to His will. It trusts in the Lord persistently. It waits on the Lord. It clings closely to God. This is the kind of faith that's described in Isaiah 40. Listen to this passage. It says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men fall and are exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall be mounted up with the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So who does God give power to? The faint. Who does God give strength to? The one who has no might. Even the youth get tired. Have them run around the school track as many times as they can. They will grow weary. But he who is waiting on the Lord, dependent upon his strength and power, has the strength, the endurance, and the power to overcome these obstacles in their life. The logic is this. If nothing is impossible for God, which it's not, and and faith is our connection to Him, it's the means by which we can enjoy a relationship with God, then by faith, these impossible obstacles in your life can be overcome. That's the logic. It's not because of your strength and your power, it's because of your access to His. That's what faith grants you. But... When you turn your eyes off of Christ and you depend on yourself, you pick yourself up by your own bootstraps to fix your own problem, you essentially unplug from heaven. And you're left to your own demise. Verse 21, you don't see it in the ESV version, but you do see it in MacArthur's version. The Legacy Standard Bible. So, uh, that doesn't mean that it's right. Actually, let me just do a brief explanation, you know, critical uh, exegesis here, is that um, verse 21 uh, is included in a lot of manuscripts, but not all of them. And so the ESV leaves it out. But not only is it included in other manuscripts, but in Mark's account, this phrase is included in most manuscripts. So I think it is legitimate, and you'll know why. Here it is. Verse 21, I included it there at the bottom of the screen. This kind, see it's talking about the quality or the kind of faith. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting are two expressions of dependent faith. Like the Canaanite woman who didn't leave Jesus alone. Or like the persistent widow who didn't leave the king alone. God wants us to persist in praying to him, persist in believing him, And when appropriate, fast as a display of that dependence. Don't stop. Don't quit until he gives you a clear answer. See, these disciples, they gave up too quickly. They tried their little formula, they cast their spell, and it didn't work. So, yup, must not be God's will. And left this poor boy alone. 
You done that? You prayed for something once and went, ah, must not be the will of God. Let's move on. Well, I told the guy. I told the guy he needed to repent. That's all I needed to say. And you move on. How many of us won't stop knocking on heaven's door? Say, God, I know. I know that you want to save. God, I I know that you desire for us to repent from sin. God, I know you want me to live a holy life. And I'm not going to stop coming to you until I see holiness manifest in my life. Until I see you move in a mighty way in this person's life that I'm ministering to. Until my attitude changes about the circumstance in my life. How many of you are sending letters regularly to heaven's mailroom? Like you, your, your knees, you're called a camel knees like the apostle John, or sorry, James, because you pray so much. Dependently upon the Lord going, Lord, I can't fix anything in my life. I need you. Or you just kind of quickly go, that must not be God's will. Moving on. You give up too easy. That was the disciples' problems here. They, they were faithless. They gave up. I think similarly, sometimes we can too easily give up on ministry or on sin in our life and just inevitably give in. It's too hard. I'm just going to give in. And we'll use maybe the excuse, I guess it's not God's will, and we don't know that yet because he hasn't answered. How many of us keep knocking? How many of us persist until the answer is clear? And if the Lord decides to give us the answer, maybe we didn't want in the end, so be it. But let it not be because of our lack of persistent prayer and our dependence upon Him. This is the faith that can move mountains. Have you prayed about it? Are you still praying about it? And then are you still praying about it? Final point here, and it's just a comment, is on verses 22 and 23. This is just the lesson misunderstood. It's like, how do you come off a lesson like that and then walk away still unbelieving? Well, disciples can. If they can, so can we. We so easily revert to unbelief. Look at the disciples' response to this information. As they're gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. Is that new information? Jesus has said that multiple times now. He has foretold the events that will accomplish great salvation, his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And what are the disciples' response? Verse 23, they were greatly distressed, disturbed, unsettled to say the least. We're talking about a level of distress that causes your stomach to turn and something might come out. That's how troubled these men are to this information that they've heard before and the reassurance Christ says, I will be raised again, by the way. I'm not going to stay dead. But it troubled them. And we too can so easily identify with this, so easily, you know, God can do a mighty work in our life. He can prove the impossible and and overcome our attitude toward a spiritual obstacle or just clearly display His sovereign power by saving somebody that we didn't expect or by reconciling a relationship we thought was impossible, God can do that. And then the next day, we're despairing again. We're distrusting again. We're going back to the stomach-turning distress because not God's sovereignty didn't change. Our hearts did. 
We took our eyes off of Christ, became self-dependent, and our thinking turned upside down. I just want to encourage you. Are you struggling to believe today? Are you struggling to trust in Christ solely and completely? Are you distracted like Peter by the storm out there? Or do you have that persistent faith that is focused on the object, Jesus Christ, trusting Him in your current circumstances to overcome whatever spiritual obstacle in your life? Maybe, maybe you can use this prayer that this father prayed. In Mark's account, it gives us the, the father's prayer. When Jesus corrected maybe a sliver of doubt in his response, the father replied in Mark 9.24, it says that immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you need to pray that prayer today. God, I believe, I want to believe, I want to trust you. You can overcome the spiritual obstacle in my life. But help my unbelief. Because even to believe correctly, we need help. We need help. Faith comes by the grace of God. We need to trust in Him. Trust in Him in every difficult circumstance with every spiritual obstacle ahead. Faith that can move mountains is a dependent trust on God. I believe, help my unbelief. May that be your prayer today and this week. Let's pray. Father, you know, and you're so gracious toward us, but you know how much we struggle with unbelief and how quickly we revert to sinful attitudes, thoughts, words, and behaviors. God, we are weak. We're powerless. You're so gracious toward us. You're so kind and merciful and long-suffering and patient that you would endure with us even though at times, Lord, we know we grieve you. God, help us to just be a dependent people. Whatever spiritual obstacles come up in our life, whatever significant trials hit us, may we depend solely on you, God. Help us to display that faith by persistently praying to you. Help us not to give up so easily. Help us not to distrust. Help us not to revert to self-confidence. God, we can't help ourselves. We need you. So God, I pray that you'd encourage all of us today to open our eyes, to look to Christ and cling tightly to your promises in him and trust. Trust you when the going gets tough. Lord, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.